Welcome back to the mystery of the missing attention span. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, Dr. Morrison here, and this segment is going to cover educational and intervention planning for kids with ADHD and their related attention problems if they don't have an ADHD diagnosis but still struggle with attention for other reasons. This is a huge referral question for us at Kids Brain. A lot of our Kids Brain families come in because they have concerns about attention and focus and behavioral and response control that falls kind of under that general umbrella of ADHD. So I want to talk a little bit just briefly about what the criterion for ADHD might look like so that we have an idea of what we're talking about. And it's not necessary to have a child meet full criterion for ADHD to have a need for supports for attention and things like that. But when we are considering from a diagnostic standpoint what that might look like here at the office, then we are talking about kind of three broad categories, struggles with attention, struggles with hyperactivity, struggles with impulsivity, because they tend to all go together. Now, some kids will have the inattentive type of ADHD. ADHD has three different types, the inattentive type, the hyperactive and impulsive type, or what's called the combined type, which is a little bit of both of the inattentive type and hyperactive and impulsive type. And essentially what we look for are struggles that look like what you would expect to see in a child who's struggling with these things. Ultimately, ADHD is a behavioral diagnosis. And so when we look at what kinds of outward behaviors we would see, they include things like having difficulty with a short attention span. So one of our previous segments talked about developmentally appropriate expectations for attention span by age. So having a child who's in a specific age who can't sustain attention for as long as their peers or difficulty listening to others, like kids that are given directions but act as if they don't hear them or don't have the ability to kind of process and act upon that. Difficulty paying attention to details, like making careless and hasty mistakes or rushing through tasks and missing details, not noticing that the instructions change from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. Kids with attention problems tend to be easily distracted. So our previous segment talked a little bit about how prioritizing attention is really what we're talking about or modulating those attentional systems to focus on the most important thing in the room Kids that have difficulties controlling those attentional systems are often distracted by noise and movement and new things that happen unexpectedly around them because it resets those attentional focus elements and shifts it from the teacher giving a math lesson to the kid next door who's got gum in their pocket and who's making a crinkly sound. That new sensory input that's novel tends to derail the brain of kids that have attention problems. They also tend to struggle with forgetfulness. So there's a kind of kiddo that kind of absent-minded professor style can have a list of items on the to-do list and not get them done. They have a terrible time getting through daily routines, even things that they've learned from the you know age of two that they were supposed to do every morning. They might need parent guidance and cueing to remind them of those steps. Depending on their ages, organizational skills tend to be a struggle. And for littler kids, we don't necessarily see this in the same way that we would for a 14 or a 15-year-old because organization and maintenance of materials and the ability to plan and strategize is really different from 2 to 3 versus 14 to 15. In one of our later segments, we'll talk about 
some of these organizational expectations by age with Kathy Kurzman, our academic executive function specialist. So we're going to dig down in a different segment, one of the episodes later on in the series to do that. Kids in the inattention zone tend to have poor study skills as well. They have a hard time planning and managing time and figuring out how much time it's going to take to complete a task, which makes them good procrastinators. They tend to underestimate how much work it's going to take to get something done. They'll say, oh, my homework takes maybe 10 minutes and then it's going to take an hour. And because they've only slotted in maybe 10 minutes for their math assignment, they're out of time and overflowing and they're constantly late and unprepared. Let's switch gears to the inattentive, from the inattentive piece to the impulsive and hyperactive piece. So for the ADHD diagnostic criterion, these two go together, although there's times that you will have kids that are more impulsive than hyperactive or more hyperactive than impulsive, but they do tend to go together because essentially hyperactivity and impulsivity are struggles with the response control parts of the brain's systems. So kids that are impulsive tend to interrupt others. They talk over the top in conversation. They don't wait their turn to gather enough information before they get started. They jump into tasks before they've heard all of the instructions. They tend to have difficulty waiting their turn in school. So they shout out answers instead of raising their hand. They insist on being at the front of the line because they have kind of a me first attitude. And in social games, they're always pushing for somebody else to go so that they can get to their turn or skipping someone else's turn so they can jump in instead. They tend to be the kids that don't wait to be called on before they blurt out answers. And your impulsive kids tend to be a little bit more risk-taking when it comes to play. So they are the kids that I think of as being monkey tail kiddos where they climb to the top of the playground equipment or they're trying to see if they can swing the highest before they jump off or they're your rock climbing kiddo or the child that's out on their skateboard or their scooter or whatever with almost no fear for their own health and wellness. And as a general rule, kids that are impulsive tend to to act before they think. So that thought process of what might happen if this, you know, specific strategy doesn't turn out how I expected. These are the kids that often will have consequences, whether they're physical or behavioral, because they did before they thought about what doing might mean. On the hyperactive side, these are the kids that tend to be in constant motion. They run, they climb, they're constantly talking or moving, even in quiet times like watching television or movies or reading a book, there's some sort of motion that's involved. And a lot of times, there's not really a goal for this motion except for the process of moving like just keeping moving. They tend to have difficulty remaining in their seat because if they're moving, then that sit and stay activity, especially in a school environment, can be quite tricky. They tend to fidget or play with things with their hands, squirm in their seat, pull and play on their clothing, tear things up or you know manipulate things in their hands that involve twisting and turning, like taking their pens apart or breaking their mechanical pencils or whatever. Kids that are hyperactive tend to talk more. So they have a hard time using those braking systems when it's time. So we talked about the impulsive piece of interrupting and talking over. These are kids that almost have a constant verbal stream of consciousness. So when they're talking, they don't have that filter system that allows you to shift the conversation that you're having out loud to the silent conversation you can have in your head. They tend to not have that. So there's very little social filter and they're talking about what's going on in their head and sometimes in a really disorganized way. 
these kids, because they talk excessively and move excessively, also have a difficult time engaging in quiet activities, and they tend to be disruptive of other kids' quiet activities. So in preschool, this may be the kiddo that can't take a nap when everybody else is and has to physically be taken to another room because they can't sit quietly and color while everybody else is napping. When you look at this a little bit later in the age range, this is a child who, during independent work in the classroom, may be up wandering, sharpening 6,000 pencils, dropping things on the floor, falling out of their seat, asking repeated questions, those sorts of disruptive activities that happen when most kids can turn all of that off and really focus in on a quiet task. Kids that are hyperactive tend to lose and forget things. So not necessarily the forgetfulness that we see in the attention piece, but the child who's lost their headphones like 6,000 times or who has a tendency to drop and leave materials like wherever they are and then not pay attention to where they are in order to come back to them later. So the child who's constantly lost their shoes or the teenager who really needs to have like a low jack on their phone because it's constantly lost. My 15-year-old has a series of how to find things add-ons that he's included. And this is out of necessity because he'll put something down and completely forgot where it was. And then when he comes back to it, he's got to backtrack his steps and either have it chime at him or ring at him or have a video that he can go back, like even in our security systems that we have at the house, right? Take a look and see on the video what happened right before that so it can bring back that memory of what he was doing right before so he can find it because those things get lost and forgotten. Um, Kids that are hyperactive tend to have a hard time staying on task. So it's not necessarily that they have difficulty with focus. They have difficulty with sustaining focus and will often shift from one task to another without bringing anything to completion. So there's, I think of these kids as starters. They've got great ideas. Wouldn't it be cool if, and then they start things and then they never finish. So you have this constant transition from one thing to another and jumbles and piles of unfinished work and activities that never come to completion. So these are the kids that we are going to see at the kids' brain office a lot. And there are kinds of kids. Their brains are interesting and creative and fun to spend time with. But when we compare them with other kids in their age range, they may have difficulties with attention or hyperactivity or impulsivity or all three that involves being able to then complete an assessment to figure out what's going on. So that's the first part, the part where we get to diagnosis or identifying the problem. The second part, which is really the focus of this discussion, is what do we do with that from an educational and intervention planning standpoint? So the second half of this process, like what do we do now, can take a couple of different forms depending on a child's age and their needs and what their family's goals are for intervention. So let's tackle the educational piece just kind of roughly. There's technically two different ways that kids can receive services in an educational system, whether it's a private or a public system, to support symptoms of ADHD or other related attention problems. And they are Section 504, which is a general education provision that's lifespan. So it's part of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it gives an opportunity for what are called accommodations, environmental adjustments to help someone with a disability level the playing field so that they have equal opportunities to the educational environment or in later age ranges, uh, their career environment. So for kids that have ADHD diagnoses, a lot of times they will receive services through Section 504. This is not the same as special education and does not include any modification of the curriculum. 
So an accommodation means the environment flexes around the child, but the curriculum stays the same. Modification is when you have, for example, a sixth grader who reads at a second grade level, so they receive educational supports at a second grade level in reading. That's modifying. It's changing the curriculum around them. That child, if that is in fact what their needs were, would need to be provided with services through the special education program because modification is not allowed through a Section 504 plan. The only thing that is allowable are things that the teachers can do in the environment or extra kind of TLC supports that can be put into place for a child who struggles with attention in the classroom that don't involve changing the curriculum at all. So they're learning the same things right alongside their peers, but there are some additional provisions for support that would potentially be helpful for a child that has attention problems. Like maybe we're extending time for kids that have difficulties with hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive behaviors. They're not always productive students. It takes longer for them to get things done because they need more reminders. It may take more study sessions for independent work to get done. They may be distracted or physically off task to the point that that 30-minute window where everybody else was able to complete their work, maybe they needed 10 more minutes to get it done. So extending time is usually a go-to accommodation for kids that have troubles with attention. Oftentimes, we're in a place, though, where from an educational planning standpoint, it needs a little bit more than that. So we might need to provide instructions more individually. Like instead of whole class instructions, hey, for this homework assignment in your world geography class, you're going to need to do X, Y, and Z. And they've written it on the board. Okay, great. But maybe that child with attention problems doesn't know how to reference it from the board and then loses mental track of what those to-do list items look like so it never gets done. They may need individual instructions where the teacher comes over and says, okay, Johnny, for our world history project today, I need you to turn to page 275 and we're going to answer questions one, two, and three on that page. And then to stand there and make sure that 275 gets found in the workbook or in the digital online textbook or wherever, and that they have paper, pencils, and materials to answer questions to one, two, and three. It may be that as an accommodation, they have more teacher check-ins where the teacher comes by and gains proximity and says, hey, Johnny, how's it going? To be able to figure out how things are working with them. So this is one of those situations where each child is a little bit different. Their needs are a little bit different. Their teachers are different. The classrooms are different. It may be a public school. It may be a private school. They may have a huge class. They might have a small class. So depending on their individual needs and the expectations in the classroom, these accommodations can differ quite drastically. But there are a number of things that when you work with a psychologist who specializes in educational planning for kids, like the team here at Kids Brain and and lots of other psychology offices around the nation and the world, that you can pair up and say, let's talk about what might help Chloe be more successful in class because she's got these attention problems. We're waiting for her brain to grow and develop. We're helping her learn new strategies, but it's not going to, it's not a magic wand or she takes medication and that seems to help, but it doesn't help all of the struggles that she's having. How can we do that? Then there's an education plan that's produced. And oftentimes it's a section 504 accommodation plan. There are some kids who have attention problems or related attention problems that are not ADHD, but still have some struggles with attention who actually don't function at grade level, like their reading skills or writing skills or math skills or all of the above are below expected. And if you put them in a sixth grade classroom, they're not going to be able to learn because their skills are much lower than that. If that's the case, or you have a child who needs individualized instruction, meaning what works for everybody else in the classroom 
although we've tried it, has not consistently been successful for this specific child. We're going to have to make some individual plans for this child. If you need to individualize the instructional components, that's when we're thinking about something like a special education plan. And depending on the state that you're in, it may be called a number of different things. It might be a special education plan. It might be an individualized education plan, which is called an IEP. It might have some other fancy name that your state has designated. But essentially, this is a funded system where through the special education provision, your state's money, the federal money that goes to kids with disabilities, will then allocate resources for teachers that have special training, teachers that have a background and experience in children who are differentiated learners, like they don't learn um, in traditional methods with the same speed and trajectory as their peers, they need something different. They need you to step back and fill gaps that are there or truly change the way that instruction is given, period, maybe to a multi-sensory method or using different strategies that can then use that child's strength sets to develop new skills at a faster pace through a special education plan. You can have a child with ADHD receive services through the special education program if they require individualized instruction. And that's a case-by-case basis. Oftentimes, this is something that parents will need a little bit of extra support for. And they may reach out to the psychologist that did the evaluation for their child or reach out to somebody separately from the school district to help serve as a guide or an advocate toward getting services in this way. They're different systems and they're hard to navigate. There's a couple of other episodes that are thrown in as bonus content that talks about how a Section 504 plan might want to be constructed and how a special education plan has different elements that and differentiating between those two. So I would point you in the direction of the very specific education plan pieces that discuss the pros and cons or the differences between a Section 504 plan and a special education plan. That's the educational piece, and there's lots more content and bonus content if you guys want to find it in the podcast listings. Let's transition for just a second to intervention planning. And this is where things get a little bit different because up until now, we've been talking about how educational systems view ADHD and other attention problems and how they can offer different provisions of support. The actual intervention planning piece, though, should span more than the school system. A lot of times, we'll work with kids' brain families who really would like for all of these support services to be put into place in school. And we tend to test kids every couple of years. So every two or three years for our returning kids, brain kids that have a diagnosis of some sort, we're wanting updated testing to be able to change their educational planning and their intervention planning in the community ever so often because expectations change from from year to year. So Making an education plan for an eight-year-old is very different than making an education plan for a 12-year-old, which is very different than making some strategies and putting some support services into place for a child who's 16. The world expects different things at those different age ranges, so the expectation for supports should also feel a little bit different. If what we're talking about is intervention planning that's completely separate from the educational piece, what we're talking about is what parents can do within their household, within the community, with private providers outside of a school district setting or their private school setting that will be able to help build specific skills that may be necessary. One of the factors that can be most frustrating for parents when they are trying to provide supports for their child with ADHD is that the educational system is reined in to a certain extent 
in that the federal provision for support, the state provisions for support for educational planning stipulate that the services that are put into place and supports that are put into place must be directly related to a child's educational success. But being successful at school is not the totality of being successful as a human. And so oftentimes when parents come to kids' brain, it's because they have an education plan in place that may or may not be working. And they're in a place where they want to be able to do more. They want to help their kids be successful at Boy Scouts or at cheerleading or in Taekwondo or during a church service or when they're having dinner with their family. And so the intervention planning piece that goes into working with kids with ADHD and other related attention problems steps outside of the classroom a lot because we're talking about life skills and the ability for these kids to be successful in all of their realms of life. So what that looks like often is pairing up with private providers who have a specialty in working with kids with ADHD and other attention problems that can have other things show up in a real world setting that potentially need to be addressed. Kids that have hyperactive and impulsive behaviors and struggles with attention tend to be redirected a lot by adults. Like they're told often, hey, buddy, I need you to do this differently. Or, hey, sister, this is something that you tried, but you didn't do a great job on because you missed all of the instructions on pages three and four. So let's redo this one. They get a lot of feedback that's corrective. And oftentimes that corrective feedback can feel quite critical. So it is not uncommon for kids that struggle with hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive behaviors to also have difficulties with mood symptoms where they struggle with anxiety or depression or self-esteem issues. And pairing up with a counselor would be helpful. But there's very little research to suggest that pairing up with a counselor is going to help with the ability to pay attention. Just sitting and talking about paying attention doesn't actually help the attentional systems function any better. If that was the case, then all of my kids' brain ADHD kids who had parents that have told them to pay attention, sit still, pay attention, sit still, from the time that they were exiting the womb would have figured this out by now. Because truly, if kids could do better, they would do better. I believe that wholeheartedly. So if that's the case, then the question is, how do we support these kids in a real world setting? So you can pair them up with a counselor to deal with the emotional part of life. Like what happens socially? How is that something that you can impact? And and you can get some benefits from pairing them up with a counselor for purposes that are specific to social emotional development. Because kids that have ADHD tend to also be uh, at risk of struggling with immaturity and difficulties with social emotional development. If you have difficulty with impulse control and you can't stop yourself from reaching out and grabbing something, then that same impulse control system is keeping you level when you're feeling frustrated. So these kids that have difficulties with impulse regulation as far as their bodies, hyperactive and impulsive behaviors, well, those same impulse control systems don't work well when it comes to emotional regulation as well. So they tend to have temper tantrums longer than other kids in their age range. They have difficulties with anger management as they get older. They're kids that are you know, more likely to lash out and be emotional. And there are specific skill set systems that we can work on. Here at Kids Brain, we have a provider on staff, Lee Fisher, who's an LPA. And her specialty is our early childhood kids, so zero to five, for autism evaluation and developmental services. But she also has a specialty in emotional regulation and building systems that allow kids to recognize their emotional states, 
and to figure out how to increase and decrease their responses in relationship with those emotional situations in a way that's predictable. Like where parents can say, okay, this might be a level three response and this is a level three problem. So that's a match. That's cool. That's expected versus this child who can't get their socks on properly and goes full nuclear. And there's a a mismatch between this super low leverage situation and a super huge emotional or behavioral reaction. So we do offer direct services like that. And there's lots of psychologists across the country and the world that do the same thing. They work with kids to level out some of those expectations for emotional manifestation. Like, what does this look like? How big is this problem? What do I need to do to create a response that's typical, that matches with that so that other people are not thrown off and that we don't create this, you know, crazy big emotional system that needs to be dealt with for no reason or in a way that adults around them didn't predict. We also have the ability to potentially work on actual skill set development. One of the other psychologists on the Kids Brain team, Dr. Rodriguez Rivera, has created a program that we call Bisbee. And it's an emotional regulation program that uses some strategies from cognitive rehabilitation, some mindful movement elements, and some strategies that work on gratitude and how you use your, your attitude and your thought process to direct you into more positive ways of thinking. And it's a merger of those kind of systems into an eight-week intensive program that looks specifically at impulse control and working memory and regulation of those systems. This skill set development piece is really important for kids that have a hard time because oftentimes the explicit instruction of, hey, this is something that other people do this way. This is the way your brain does it. Let's talk about some strategies for how to support your brain in doing these things better or in a way that causes less stress for you or less negative outcomes or less conflict or whatever. Because kids with ADHD and attention problems don't want that kind of redirection and negative energy and stress and conflict. Nobody does. Like no humans in the world want that. So if what we're trying to do is create humans that are tolerable, like develop kids that are adults that are tolerable, they have to be able to have control of these systems. Some of this comes with age and maturation. But if you think about the disintegration of some of the social connectedness that happens if we're just waiting for maturation, like if that's the only thing that we've got, it's really hard to parent these kids sometimes because they say and do things that are unpredictable. They don't have the impulse control and attention needed to be productive and successful in the same way that their peers are at times without a lot of extra guidance from adults and siblings and teachers and their taekwondo instructor and whoever they need more help along the way. And that can be exhausting to a parent or a teacher or whoever is really motivated to work with this child, but it's constant and it's hard and they're struggling. And it takes a lot of energy and effort on the adult side and the friend side and the relationship side to be able to make that happen. So working explicitly on skill set development can be an excellent strategy. And there's a number of systems that can help in this way. Let's talk briefly about medication. So I'm not a medical doctor. I don't prescribe medication, never wanted to. My training has always been in the behavioral aspects of how to support kids and the intervention pieces that are driven specifically from like how we can build skill sets or how the environment can support a brain as it grows and develops its strategies. But there, there is some research that suggests that medication can be helpful for kids with ADHD in learning to modulate these behaviors. So if you have a child with ADHD and you've tried all the behavioral stuff or you're a kid's brain kid and you've done 
Bisbee and you've done some zones of regulation work with Lee and you've had all of the educational pieces are clicking and everything looks good at school, but you're still pulling your hair out as a parent, then this is one of those situations where it would be remiss to not mention that there's medical options for treatment as well, or medication can potentially be helpful for kids. But if you think that medication for ADHD is a magic wand that's going to fix it, it's not. I describe this to parents as kind of like a Band-Aid. It's something that covers up a wound and maybe makes it feel better, look better, but it doesn't actually create healing underneath it. So what we're talking about is kids that have immature communication systems in their brains. They didn't choose to be inattentive or hyperactive or impulsive. It doesn't benefit them to be in that way because it actually makes life really hard for them and for their parents, for their teachers, for their friends. So these are things that are not voluntary. We can impact how they grow some skill sets over time, but ultimately we're talking about something that's akin to like diabetes or um, heart disease that happens genetically or something that you didn't get to choose, something that happens that you didn't get to choose. But we have the ability to potentially provide some supports and outcomes. And to me, that can happen in three different realms. And some families will choose supports in all three realms, sometimes in several that jive well with their family. And we, you know, every kid's brain family is a little bit different. We want to make sure that the recommendations that we provide are also in line with what that family wants for their children. Because ultimately, parents are the keepers of their children. They're the ones that have to lay their head down at night and say, I did a good parent job today. Not me. And not the staff here at Kids Brain that works with our Kids Brain kids. So when we're talking about planning, our job is to help set up educational planning and educate parents and service child advocates to, to get those educational elements into play so that they can be as successful as possible at school. We want them to be good learners. We want them to develop skills so that they can become tolerable humans that go out into society and use their strength sets to benefit the world and themselves in some way. Like that's ultimately we want, what we want for our Kids Brain kids and for all kids. The intervention planning piece means providing some strategies for skill set development, some of which we have here at Kids Brain, some of which are in lots of psychology offices around either in our area or in the nation around the world, wherever you are. There are psychologists out there that specialize in skill set development. And then we have the part where we're talking about other potential supports that can be helpful. Like maybe your child has some dietary sensitivities and consultation with your medical doctor or a dietitian may be particularly helpful. There's not a diet specifically for ADHD because it's a specific individual factor. Like each body, each brain is a little bit different, but some kids are sensitive to stuff, whether it's sensory processing differences that can be supported with an occupational therapist or some sort of intolerance to food that eliminating that from their diet or making some dietary changes may be helpful. It could be that medication is something that you try with your uh, physician or psychiatrist as a support person there. That is an avenue for uh, support for kids with ADHD at times as well. Is it a foolproof system? No. About two-thirds of kids that trial medication for ADHD will try more than one medication and sometimes multiple medications before they find one that is a good match for coverage of symptoms that doesn't have a lot of side effects that are detrimental and make it unpleasant to take that medication. It can be a long road. All of these are long roads, actually. The educational planning piece and intervention planning piece, parent training, and opportunities to potentially address this through diet or exercise or medication or that more kind of medical model. All of these are possible. And some families will pursue all of these as supports for themselves and for their children. But part of the process of 
helping kids that have ADHD and other related attention problems is to consider creating a village of professionals that each take a piece of the puzzle and say, I can help with this. This is something that I can be beneficial in supporting so that kids have well-rounded opportunities to receive support for the skill set gaps that are there. Because truly, truly, the way that I conceptualize these difficulties is that we have kids that don't have the skill sets needed to meet expectations that are put out there by others. And that if we can focus in on how to build those skill sets, that we can create a successful lifelong learner and a tolerable human and a family who has made them feel like they belong and has created an environment where they can thrive. So hopefully this gives you some basics for how best to conceptualize education and intervention planning for kids that have ADHD and attention problems so that you can start to create a village to help you and your child through the growth and development process that you are undergoing. Thanks for joining me for this segment. Catch you in the next one. Welcome back to this week's quick and easy behavior tip with Dr. Morrison. We're going to talk about a strategy today that I call one, two, three, please do, and series of steps that will hopefully lead you to a place where you get more yeses than nos. Some kids simply have a harder time saying yes when it comes to adult requests. Uh, They tend to argue or give information that tells you why your request might be silly or push back on tasks that they perceive to be challenging for them or unpleasant for them. A great way to ease past a child who is prone to an immediate no when you ask for something to be done, especially when it is predictable, like something that always results in a no, whether it's cleaning up their room or getting started on their reading homework, something that every single day the same pattern of behavior plays out with a no and back and forth, then what you want to do is potentially set up a situation where yes is more likely to happen. We're going to do that by providing an opportunity for what's called behavioral momentum. Just like uh, the laws of physics apply to an object in motion and an object in rest, right? An object in motion stays in motion until it gets enough friction that it stops, or an object at rest takes a whole lot of effort to move past that stay place. Kids are the same way. So if you have kids that are more likely to say no, it takes a lot of effort to get them past stopping into going. And for kids that are on the move, it is much easier for them to be compliant when they are already following requests. So this is where I want you to strategically think about your kids and about the things that are easy for them to say yes to. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little example. We're going to use the example of a little boy named James. For instance, James always has a problem starting math homework. It's always a fight. So as James's parent, what I want to think about is some strategic things that James is almost always okay with. These should be easy things. They should be simple things, and they should be areas where James is almost always compliant. And what we're going to do is build him into yes mode. Kids who are in yes mode are far more likely to stay in yes mode, and the same is true for no mode. So try something a little along the lines of this. James, can you hand me that book? Ooh, thank you, sweetie. Oh, look, it's snack time. Can you pick out a snack? Nice choice. Hold up your hand for a high five. This is your third request. High five. Get your hand for a high five. That's three things that James has heard you request or seen you request and has followed through with. Now, let's start with your math worksheet while you eat your snack. Notice the last one was a directive, not can you start your math worksheet, which is likely to end up in a no. 
So what we're trying to do is target one, two, maybe three easy things to get started with first to mix it up each time that James needs to do his math homework. So maybe it's, hey, buddy, can you push that chair in? Or can you hand me that cup? I need to put it in the sink. Or you know what? I think I need a hug. Can I have a quick hug? Whatever simple requests you can come up with. And once you've linked one, two, or three in order, then please get started on your math homework. And you hand him the pencil and you stand there with three to five calm seconds of eye contact until he gets started and then say, great job. I love it when you work so hard. Some strategic praise at the end is a nice icing on the cake. All right, that's this week's quick and easy behavior tip. I'll catch you next time.